As we stand in this sanctuary on this Lord's Day, I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Matthew chapter 4. We'll begin reading together today in verse 17. Hear the Word of God. From that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and Andrew his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Then he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. They immediately left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. He called, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Let's pray. Our good and our holy God, we thank you for this fresh year. We thank you for this new day. We thank you that your mercies are new every morning. And Lord, with this fresh day comes fresh opportunities, opportunities for growth, opportunities for surrender, opportunities to meet with you and and to follow afresh, opportunities to surrender our lives, to receive you into our very hearts, to begin to walk with you. Lord, we thank you that you come into our lives through your word, and we thank you that by your Holy Spirit, you take words and make a word, a word to live by, a a word to stand on, a word to trust. So God, as we come together again, we come asking you to give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Give us tender hearts that would receive your word like a seed planted in rich soil. Give us feet that would walk quickly to do your will. Strengthen our hands that our work in this world would be like your own. And God, we pray that a word of life and hope, a word of truth would be found on our lips. God, this is our prayer in the mighty name of Jesus. And we pray together saying, amen and amen. Please be seated. Today in this new year, we begin a new sermon series based on Peter uh, and Peter's following of Christ. Today we begin in in this early story in the life of Jesus. And as you read, you came to verse 19. In verse 19, you have in those old Bibles, you have words in red. You have the words of Jesus. And and Jesus spoke and he said, follow me. T.B. Maston said, this is a recurring command for the follower of Christ. It comes to us at the beginning of our journey with Jesus. Follow me, and we must respond in that crisis moment to follow Jesus with all of our life for the rest of our days. And then it comes again and again and again and again in much smaller ways as, as the summons of Jesus is concretized in very particular ways as we're invited over and over and over again by our Lord to follow, to follow. You say, Matt, I'm a a Christian. I've 
I have professed my faith in Christ. I have been baptized to demonstrate that. I, I am a follower, but I still wonder, what does it mean to follow? How do you go about it? How do you do it? I mean, it seemed really easy for Peter because Jesus was standing in the flesh right before him. To follow him meant I go from point A to point B with Jesus. Now, we're living under different circumstances, although they're largely the same. So what do we need to know? What do we need to do in this day, in this moment, in this hour to respond faithfully to the command, follow me? The one that is relentless, that recurs again and again. How do we follow Christ? Over the next several weeks, through the lens of Peter's experience with Jesus, we're going to we're going to attempt to answer that in measure, what, what it means to follow Christ. Well, this is what it means. We won't grab it all. There's no way to. We'll spend the rest of our life learning what it means to follow Christ. But we'll gather to ourselves a couple of truths, some ideas, some things that just might help us along the way. And on this Sunday morning, as we start this series, I want us to spend some time in this story Recognizing in this little narrative some of the marks, some of the identifying features of men and women, boys and girls that follow Jesus. We'll begin with this idea that that following Jesus is marked by responsiveness. By responsiveness. We began outside of the story itself today in verse 17 where there was a description of Jesus. It said, as this time... He went about talking about and preaching the nearness of the kingdom of heaven. Now, you've often heard the phrase, the kingdom of God. And here in the book of Matthew, you have the kingdom of heaven. And some say, is there a distinction between these two? Why does Matthew use this phrase so often? Some people will say that Matthew is writing with the sensitivity toward the Jewish community, that his, that his gospel was largely uh, to tell the story of Christ for people uh, of Jewish faith, and, and that there was a sensitivity in that community to speaking the name of God. Today, if you're in Israel and you pick up uh, an English language paper, you, you almost uh, always find in there that when God is spoken of, it'll be G, an underscore with no O, and a D. Like, we're not going to write the name God out. We're not going to put that. It won't be found on our lips because the names for God are so sacred. They're so holy. They don't need to be found on our tongues. And so some people say that that Matthew used the phrase the kingdom of heaven out of that sensitivity. Although he didn't use it exclusively. Sometimes he just straight out said the kingdom of God. So there are those who believe this. That that what Matthew is trying to emphasize for all of us is that what Jesus was about and what he was calling us to came from beyond our everyday experience. That there's a transcendent nature to the message of the kingdom. That it's from beyond. that, that, That it breaks in to our moments. That that it's alien to our experience in, in, in large measure, that it, it crash lands into our world, if you will, 
And we're so used to protecting ourselves from a transcendent God, we live with what Charles Taylor calls a buffered sense of self. I mean, we can go through entire days without thinking about or experiencing in our front of our minds the reality of God. And you say, well, those ancient people, they lived much closer to God, and they had a much easier time. Well, in the epistles to Peter, he would say something like this. Well, there's a lot of people who say it's just going on like it's always going on, like it was with their fathers. Nothing changes, nothing's new under the sun. Even ancient people lived with a sense of a buffered self from time to time. And Jesus came tearing a hole in the heavens. Do you remember the prayer of Isaiah? Oh, God, that you would rend the heavens and come down. You remember when Jesus was baptized? The heavens were rent. And the Spirit descended on Jesus. And the God of heaven tabernacled on the earth. And Jesus went about proclaiming the kingdom of heaven. We didn't convene an assembly of humans, and think up the gospel. It wasn't the fruit of our earthly conclave. The kingdom of heaven came to earth and called to us. And the first mark of a disciple is the mark of responsiveness not one of creativity or religious genius or inventiveness or any of that. But the mark of responsiveness to the call of the kingdom of heaven. Another way that this is illustrated in this story is the fact that Jesus goes about calling disciples and people become disciples of Jesus in a very unorthodox kind of way. You see, Jesus wasn't the only itinerant preacher. He wasn't the only walking rabbi. He wasn't the only cynic sage. He wasn't the only philosopher of the day that had disciples. Uh, there were scores of people uh, who went about, who walked about teaching. Uh, scores of people who, who went about that had disciples. But mostly how it worked was this. Is that people who were in the kind of position in life where they could become the disciple of a philosopher or the disciple of a rabbi, when, when the lines fell to them in those kind of pleasant ways, uh, they could look around, they could shop around, uh, they, they, could, they could research the options out there, and, and then they would present themselves to the teacher. They would volunteer, so to speak. They'd say, I want to be your student. And then having become the student of that rabbi, they may grow to the point where they think, well, I have outgrown this rabbi. And they start shopping again. And they move from one rabbi to another rabbi, always, always, always volunteering. As I look around the room today, there's a bunch of seminarians here, leaders of seminary. Uh, we even have Ken Pruitt from, from Leland Seminary. That's another seminary. We got multiple seminaries in this little room today. And today when, when you have uh, students come to the seminary, uh, it's often like that. You advertise, you, you put it out there. You say, this is how we train people for ministry. And people show up. You'd love to be able to do it like Jesus did it, wouldn't you? Because he just flipped the whole thing. Instead of waiting for volunteers, Jesus. Jesus walked up 
And Jesus commanded. And Jesus called. And Rabbi Jesus came, not waiting for volunteers, but he came into the lives of people and he said, follow me. This was not how it was ordinarily done. This was opposite to how it was ordinarily done. But Jesus was no ordinary rabbi. And so Jesus could invade someone's life by grace and say, follow me. There is a bit of a biblical precedent for this. It's found in the Old Testament story of Elijah and Elisha in 1 Kings chapter 19. God is doing something unique and special in the world during those days. Remember Elijah? He was so forlorn and crestfallen after his great victory. Uh, after his, he just, I just don't know. And God met him in that sheer silence with that still small voice. God met him. And he said, you're not the only one. He says, I've got other prophets. He says, and I'm raising up prophets. And then on the heels of that, there's the story of Elijah calling Elisha to be his disciple in prophetic ministry and life. And this is how the story goes, beginning in verse 19. So he departed from there, and he found Elisha, the son of Shaphan, uh, who was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen before him, and he was with the 12. Then Elijah passed by him and threw his mantle on him. This is the call. And he left the oxen and ran after Elijah, and he said, please, let, let me... Please, please let me kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow you. And he said to him, go back again, for what have I done to you? So Elisha turned back from him, and he took a yoke of oxen and slaughtered them and boiled their flesh using the oxen's equipment and gave it to the people, and they ate. Then he arose and followed Elijah, and he became his servant. This is the model of Jesus' call. You're just out there in the field plowing away, going about your business, doing your thing. And grace crash lands in your life. And God says, follow me. And in that moment, Elisha did something very interesting. In the most vivid way possible, he said, I'm all in. He took those plowing animals and he took that wooden equipment that was plowing the field and he barbecued the ox. Listen, when you eat the ox and you burn the equipment, there's no going back. This barbecue said, okay, let's all eat because it's the last time we're going to eat here. Our life has changed. It's changed forever. And we're going to be about something different. And this is the model for the calling of Peter. Jesus came to him and he said, follow me. He says, I will make you fish for people. Fisher of fish. He says, I'm going to change your whole life. You fisher of fish. You're now about to fish for people. Now, don't push this too far. I mean, every, every poetic, 
every lyrical, every artistic thing in the Bible is, is, is mangled by us folks with, with engineer brains. I was once at a, at a wild game dinner. You ever been to one of these events? Uh, sometimes they called a beast feast. It was at the Tomb Super Baptist Church. Uh, that means dead horse in Choctaw. And, and all these guys are out doing each other, cooking critters from the woods. A, a guy had barbecued a beaver at this event, you know. You haven't lived until you've eaten barbecued beaver at a church called Dead Horse. And uh, <laughs> as we were out there, and they had this guy, and he was talking, and he was talking about the fishers of men thing. And, and he basically turned evangelism into manipulating people, tricking them into the kingdom of God. You, you could push this story to the, to the place where it's like an advocacy for cannibalism. <laughs> This is not what Jesus was saying. He's saying, I've been out there gathering people to myself. And I'm going to teach you how to gather people to me. Later on, a few chapters later, Jesus tells the parable of the net about the angels coming on the day of the Lord and, and gathering up people, the wicked to judgment and God's people to everlasting joy. He says, I'm here to gather people to everlasting joy. And I'm going to transfer your lives and teach you how to do it. Follow me. Begins with responding to that call. Responsiveness marks the life of the disciple. Because it's from the kingdom of heaven. It's from the outside. It's from a place of gracious givenness. This is why I believe in John chapter 1, Jesus changes Peter's name. He said, you shall be Cephas. If anything illustrates the great givenness of life, it's the fact that we don't choose our own names. My name is Matthew Lee Snowden. I didn't pick the first, the middle, or the last name. I'm identified by a fixed givenness. It came from outside of me. It came from my parents and their parents before. Wes is basketball coach, and his wife are going to have a little baby, and they're so excited. It's their first child, and we were sitting in the stands next to his wife, and she was talking to us about naming their little girl and all they were going through, all they were thinking about to name that child. You know who's not worried about that? That little baby in her mama's tummy. That little baby's going to show up in the world and somebody's going to fix her with a name from outside. And to would-be followers, Jesus comes and he says, I have authority over your identity. I have a name for you. This is your name. Follow. Follow me. A great point in life, a great telos cannot bubble up from within. It's got to come from without. There's a gracious givenness to having a point to life. And it comes from the king of heaven. Therefore, responsiveness marks the way of the disciple. And how did those disciples follow? It said immediately, immediately, suddenly, suddenly. When Jesus called, they responded. When Jesus calls us, and, and this call is recurring, when Jesus calls to us, 
there must be that sanctified urgency that, that suddenly, that immediately, that adorns our response. And recognize this, that with that urgency came a beating hope. They weren't just following uh, by leaving. They were following to join. They weren't just leaving behind a job. They were following the man Jesus. Leslie Newbigin said, the deepest motive for mission is simply the desire to be with Jesus where he is on the frontier between the reign of God and the usurped dominion of the devil. The simplest motive for mission, the deepest one, is the desire to be with Jesus. Jesus said, follow what? Who? And so immediately they followed. T.B. Masson, the great ethicist of a generation past, said, but we should never forget that we must respond to his invitation. His invitation, come, follow me. We should always remember he will never ask us to go anywhere he has not gone or ask us to do anything he has not done or will not do. Also, as someone has suggested, the resurrection Christ still has two hands, one to point the way he would have us to go and the other to help us along the way. Come, follow me rings out in this moment with the promise, for I will never leave you or forsake you. I will be with you to the end of the age. Discipleship is marked by responsiveness. That's one. Discipleship, following Jesus, is also marked by renunciation. There is a price that we pay when we obey the call to follow me. Elisha barbecued his ox. He was all in. Peter left behind his nets. He was all in. And when we suddenly, immediately find ourselves following Jesus, we will recognize that we have to be all in too and there are some things that need to be renounced. Now, here's the tricky part. Here's the tricky part. Peter left behind his nets. Elijah left behind his oxen. Paul kept making tents. So somehow, some way, there has to be a measure of renunciation in our life, even as we continue to live our lives. The old word for it is detachment. Google and ye shall find. If, you've been, if you begin to Google the spiritual detachment right now, you're going to run across uh, Ignatian spirituality. You're going to run across Ignatius Loyola, who, who re, coming back from wounds from war, begins to have an experience with God as God begins to work in his life. And he's healed from his near-death experience. He comes out and he begins to teach a spiritual renewal method called detachment. If you Google it, there's article after article after article after article. I don't advocate that. Just listen to me for the next three minutes. <laughs> detachment says this. True detachment indicates that we accept what God gives us with gratitude. 
and that we surrender our claim of control over our lives. It means you might be a tent maker. That might be your job. You might have that job. But that job cannot have you. It means you might have some things, but those things cannot have you. So you might have a family, but that family cannot have you. Are you following me? The place where we see this most clearly in the Bible, I think, is in Philippians chapter 4, verses 11 to 13. Now, Philippians 4.13 is one of the most misapplied verses of Scripture in the history of Scriptures. Here's the thing. A verse out of context is an abomination unto God and an ever-present help in times of trouble. <laughs> and this is one people go to all the time. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So, well, well, I'd like to stack greasy BBs. Well, I don't know that you can stack greasy BBs. Of course I can stack greasy BBs. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Okay, give it a shot. You're four foot three. You can't jump at all. You can't handle a ball. But your dream is to be one of the Boston Celtics. You say, I don't think you're equipped to be a Boston Celtic. But I can because I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Okay, give it a shot. You're singing. You're tone deaf, right? You're tone deaf. When you try to sing, you sound like a dying cat in a hailstorm. But you want to be on Broadway with the, big, with the big showstoppers. You say, I have a dream to be on Broadway. I don't know that you're equipped to be on Broadway. Of course I can. I can do all things through Christ. You give me, okay, give it a shot. Give it a shot. Try it. Do what you can. That's not what this is about. Paul's teaching in Philippians 4, 11 to 13, is about living life without the claims of the things of the earth boring into our soul to a such degree that we're attached to them. It's about a healthy spiritual detachment that is born from the absolute commitment to the way of God, seeking things that are above. He said it like this, not that I speak in regard to the need, for I've learned whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be a base and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things, I have learned to be both full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. This is a renunciation for the glory of the way of Jesus. This is saying Christ is my life. And if I'm abounding with many things, those many things will not have me, for Christ is my life. And if one day all of those things disappear with a powerful wind, as they often do as the winds of life blow, when I'm standing there on the slab of my destroyed home, I am no less the woman or the man of God than I was before. For Christ is my life. For Christ is my life. And if he should call me to barbecue my ox, I'm free to do it. And if he should call me to leave my nets, I'm free to do it. And if he should call me to make tents like I've always made tents for his glory, I'm free to do it. 
Because it's not about the categories, it's about the Christ and following him. And those who follow him are marked by renunciation. And finally, as we close, following Jesus is marked by responsibility. He says, I will make you fish for people. My responsibility will become your responsibility. The mission of God and the disciples of God are introduced in the same sentence in Matthew's gospel. The same paragraph, the same story. You have fished for fish. I will teach you to fish for people. Just like I'm fishing for people. There are these great summary statements about Jesus in the Bible. Two of them he said himself. One was said about him by Luke. To Pilate, Jesus said, you say that I am a king. In fact, the reason that I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Jesus would say in Luke 19.10, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Luke in Acts 10.38 would say of Jesus, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, and he went about doing good. You can't proclaim the good news and be the bad news at the same time. And Jesus' life was defined by testifying to the truth. It was defined by seeking people who he described as lost. And every time he talked about lost things, he emphasized how precious those things were and how much joy there was when they were found. And he went about doing good. Look, let's not make this harder than it needs to be. We're good at that. We make things more difficult than they need to be to get us out of the net. Nobody can bumble simple things quicker than smart people. Jesus said, follow me. Follow me. I'm seeking people. Follow me. I'm testifying to the truth. Follow me. I'm going around doing good, empowered by God's grace. Follow me. When he calls, he makes us responsible to respond to the call. And by his grace, we can. Let us follow him. Let's pray together. God, I thank you for the people in this room, and I thank you for the opportunity you give us week after week, month after month, year after year to gather around your word. We thank you for the recurring call to follow Christ. Lord, that's going to look different for each of us today. For some in this room, it might be a, a very initial uh, call to follow, a, a call to lay down the whole of the life to confess faith and follow you in obedience. 
For some of us, Lord, it's just that next step in life that, that you've called us to, that next step of obedience. Many of us, Lord, have things sitting right out there in front of us that you've, you've invited us to. And, and we're holding back. Lord, empower us by your spirit to just renounce our pride, maybe our laziness or our fear. Just lay that, lay that down like Peter's nets and, and follow. For some of us, Lord, we need to take up that responsibility again to testify to the truth and to do good for our neighbors for the sake of the nations. Or whatever it is, help us so that we can do it for your glory and for our good. This is our prayer in Christ's name. And we say together, amen. Amen. Friends, I invite you to stand. We're going to sing. We call it a hymn of commitment. If there are commitments that you have made in the privacy of your heart that you believe God would have you make publicly today, Perhaps it's to join this church, unite with this church. Perhaps it's to be baptized. Perhaps you simply have a need in your life and you need us to know about it and join with you in prayer. Whatever it is, uh, we invite you to come forward. I'll pray with you. Uh, if there's just something going on in your heart and you need to deal with God right where you are while you're singing, just offer that up to him. His call is recurring and he's calling some of you today. Perhaps he's calling all of us. Will you follow as we sing? Amen.